listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for October 2015. Today's episode is titled, Preparation for Success, Submission to Authority. A biblical definition of a successful life is a life that reflects alignment with the will and ways of God. This means that parents need to thoroughly train their children in Scripture and in their specific vocational callings. Management must learn to function as healthy authority figures for organizations seeking to release the God-ordained potential of each worker. There must be a culture of submission to authority throughout the organization. Workers should be screened to see if they understand the importance of submission and are willing to truly submit to authority. Proper submission to parents is an indicator that a worker understands submission to authority and should be one of the key hiring qualifications of every organization. Avoid hiring workers who do not have a history of submission to authority, both in their family of origin and in the workplace. And now Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, Preparation for Success, Submission to Authority. I want to continue today talking about something I talked about the last time I was here, which has been a while. But I was talking to you about success. Remember that? Some of you that may have been here. And I used the text in Luke chapter 2, verses 40 through 52, to talk about this. This text is a little snippet in the life of Jesus. It happens to be um, the one record we have of him as a child. Other than his birth, we have a little scene when he was 12 years old, a little snippet of his life, and it gives us some clues about how he thought and how he was preparing for his life. And if there was anyone that had a sense of destiny or purpose in life, it had to be Jesus. He operated with a very clear sense of that. And so I want to go back through that text. And when I shared with this text with you before, I focused on things like, you know, the point of, of one of the key things about preparing for success is to be a, a student of Scripture. You know, if, if Scripture is God's revelation to us, the greatest revelation to us, it's the handbook for life. Of course, it's much more than that, but that is one of the things it is. And so we need to be really good students of the handbook. I know when I was studying science, I had on my desk uh, a handbook of chemistry and physics. I kept it there, so for whatever things that might come up, if I needed to refer to, you know, get a, a, a value of a constant or an equation or some explanation of something, I had the handbook there. So likewise, the Bible needs to be our handbook for life. So clearly that was the case for Jesus, so he was a great student of Scripture. Another point we made about in preparation for success was you need to be doing something that you're sent to do. Uh, we, we, are not, we do not have the authority to self-send. We have a sender, and that is the Father sends us on a mission, just like the lady that founded the Mothers That Get Drunk Driving. She was sent to do that. What prompted her to see that sending was a horrific event in which she lost her daughter. So this is how God works. He sets things up to send you where he wants you to go to do what he's called you to do. So today I want to talk about another element of success that I think is very critical for you to discover the purpose of God for your life and therefore enjoy success in life, and that is submission. I know this is a very popular topic. Everybody's running out to buy books on submission and want to learn all about submission. We're all into that. 
And I'm obviously being very facetious because we are the opposite of that. We are in a culture that celebrates independence. We do not celebrate submission. So I want you to see something of how Jesus was submitted here. And, of course, as you you see this in the rest of his life, the context of his life, you'll see this was very important to launch him into what God called him to do. So we're going to read these 12 verses, Luke 2, verses 40 through 52. I'm going to make a few comments as we go and then draw some application. And then we'll try to have some discussion time, some Q&A. So I want to encourage you to make notes of something that, that the Holy Spirit is highlighting to you. Just try to capture that so you can share that with us when we get to our discussion time. I'm reading to you out of the New King James Version, starting with verse 40 of Luke chapter 2. And the child, referring to Christ, grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. Now, the Feast of the Passover happened in the first month of the Jewish calendar, which is was the Jewish calendar began in the spring. So this would have been the middle of the first month. It was a one-week feast, and they typically went up there. That was part of their custom as a family, part of their religious tradition, if you wish. And when they had finished the days, they returned. They were going back to Nazareth, uh, which is a several-day journey. And, of course, they didn't have buses and trains and airplanes, so they were walking largely. And the boy Jesus lingered behind. Now, this word lingered behind in the Greek is very interesting because it's the word hupomene. Now, hupomene is normally a word that's used to refer to linger under persecution. That's normally the sense of it. So I find that interesting that, that the Greek text would use that particular word to say he stayed behind. There's some, obviously, there was some struggle going on here. Maybe in his own mind, maybe he is um, perplexed by some things. You see, Jesus was, was fully man, just like he was fully God. You know, the church came to that conclusion, you know, a number of centuries ago when they wrestled with the nature of Christ. Who was he in terms of his essential nature? And they concluded he was fully man and fully God. So in his humanity, he was growing like any other human. And so in his humanity, he struggled with things, struggled to understand things, struggled to be, I'm going to use a term here, don't, don't, get, don't back away here. He struggled to be metaphysically aware. Now, metaphysical means, literally means, meta means beyond, physical means the physical realm. So it means beyond the physical. So when we use the word metaphysically aware, we're talking about seeing beyond the natural into the supernatural. So another way to say that is, what is God's perspective on this? See, God's perspective is beyond the natural. So just like the lady with that started the mothers with the drunk driving, when she was emboldened through the death of her daughter to start that organization, she was be seen beyond the death of her daughter, the physical death, to what God wanted to do through that situation. She became metaphysically aware of what God was saying to her and calling her to do. So Jesus was struggling, I think, here with some metaphysical awareness, which every human being will do if you know the Lord. 
and you're trying to grow in Christ, you will struggle with seeing what God is doing. God is always doing things. In every situation, even ugly situations, difficult situations, like the death of a child. How many of you have lost a child? Anybody in this room lost a child? Well, no one, you've been, that's, that's a great blessing. I lost a niece about 20, 24 years ago. She was 13 at the time. And I just, what that did to the family was just devastating as we were wrestling with why would the Lord take this 13 year old girl at that time who had such promise, was so bright, and everything about her life looked so positive, and yet the Lord took her. So those are difficult questions, and we have to learn to think beyond the natural, think beyond ourselves, our own self-interest. So what is it that God is doing through that situation? So on some level, Jesus was wrestling with metaphysical awareness here, and I think that's what's implied by that word there. So Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem. Joseph and his mother did not know, but supposing him to be in the company, they went a day's journey and sought to find him among their relatives and acquaintances. So apparently this was a pretty large crowd, and he just assumed, well, he's, he's with us somewhere, we just don't see him, so we'll just go on. Because this was their custom, they did it every year. Jesus knew this, he knew you know, when they would leave, and he knew the group, and so he had all the information he needed to be with them, and he should have been with them, but he wasn't. And they don't discover it until they've gone a day. So that means they have to travel a day back. So can you imagine what's going on? Put yourself in their shoes. How many of your parents? Or all of you, just about all of your parents? How would you feel about that? Your child is missing, you don't know where they are, and you're a day away. Now you've got to turn around and go back. So that's what's happening. They've gone back. So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Now so it was that after three days they found him in the temple. Now I'm assuming that meant that the day out, a day back, and then another day looking for him. So three days they finally found him, sitting in the midst of the teachers. Now look what he's doing. He's both listening and asking questions. So he's very actively listening. This word here is a word akuo. Uh, you probably hear the word acoustic in that. Acoustics has to do with sound. You know, much of English is, is, are, are words are derivatives of Greek words, which is always fascinating to see that connection. So akuo is one of those words here. And the, the sense of this, he is, is active listening. He's actively engaged in listening. He's not just listening. My daughters, when they were teenagers, and I wanted to instruct them in something, they would frequently say, I hear you. And you know what that meant? Yeah, I'm not listening. That's what that meant. Well, this is not the sense of it here. Jesus is listening actively. He's tuned in. And he's asking them questions. In fact, this word for asking questions literally is a word that means to interrogate. It'd be a legal term. It'd be like a lawyer interrogating a witness on the stand. It's that level of interrogation going on here. So Jesus is not just, you know, sitting there, you know, coming up with a question here and there, being polite about it. He's kind of in your face saying, now, what do you mean by that? And what about this? Explain this to me. Now, how do you feel when somebody's coming at you like that? I'm getting ready to leave. That's good. <laughs> just, just a little intimidated. Well, Jesus was very serious. His 
waking up to becoming metaphysically aware of his destiny and his life, you know, created a great curiosity. You know, how curious are you about the call of God on your life? How curious are you to know why you're here? What's it worth to you to really start pressing in to the spiritual leaders? And you notice he's talking to the spiritual leaders to get his destiny. How curious are you to press into them to try to discern the purpose of God for your life? Most of us, not very curious. And the reason for it is we're very complacent. We're reasonably content with what's going on in life. You know, no real pain, no real issues. You know, we're just going on in life. Have you ever noticed how we greet each other? We say, how are you doing? Or if we're Spanish, we say, como esta? Okay? And how do people normally respond? Bien. Bien, muy bien. You know, well, we're doing, doing well. We usually say good, which is the wrong way to respond. The proper grammatical way to respond in English is you say well. It's an adverb. We use the adjective good, which is incorrect grammar, for those of you that want to know that. So... But we're, how, when we say that, what are we really saying? There went 68 years. <laughs> Listen, if that's all you got, you're not getting this. You're not being metaphysically aware. I mean, that's really nothing. There's something a lot deeper than that in here. So we normally respond to how are you doing very superficially, very much in the natural. We should be responding thinking beyond the natural. So one of the things that I've tried to start doing to reflect this is people ask me how I'm doing, and my response is now, in the Lord I am well. I'm always well. It doesn't matter what's going on, I'm well. In the natural, things can be sometimes easy and pleasant, sometimes they can be challenging. So I'm trying to make that distinction, if nothing else for me. You know, nobody else may get it, but I'm trying to get it to think beyond the natural, to be metaphysically aware of what's really going on. So Jesus was very much into trying to really understand as a 12-year-old, you know, really what it is the purpose of God is for my life. And I'm going to the spiritual leaders because they have the most wisdom to help me discern that. Now see, that, that doesn't come natural for us at all. We think, well, gee, I, you know, I want to try to find out what I'm supposed to do in life. Well, let me go talk to a career counselor. Isn't that where we go? Yeah, career counselor. So, so go to, you know, go to somebody at the at the university that would be it will guide me there. No, we need spiritual guidance. You need metaphysical guidance because your purpose here is not defined in the natural. It's defined by your Creator. So you need to be talking to the people that know Him and are piped into him and can communicate with him and pray and help you discern. So that's where Jesus is. He is there trying to get guidance and direction from the spiritual leaders of his day. So, and then the next verse says, and all who heard him were astonished. Now wait a minute. The prior verse said he was listening and interrogating them, and now you have him obviously answering questions too. They must have been asking him things. And so when they were listening to him, they were astonished. And literally that word for astonished means they were thrown off. They were shocked. They were surprised. They didn't expect that. And his understanding, and that word understanding there is a word we get the synthesis, the word synthesis from. 
A synthesis is when you're gathering data and you're pulling it all together to see what it all means. He's synthesizing scripture in ways they had not heard it. Now, do you think they, he might have been giving them some clues about himself and his own destiny as a suffering servant? Well, we don't know that, but it could be he was beginning to see that here at age 12, beginning to understand that. So when they saw him, now this is referring to his parents, they were amazed, and his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And that word anxiously there means there was anguish, intense pain in their hearts. And he said to them, Why do you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Now, let me suggest that this was a, this is a difficult text in the Greek language to translate into English. The word business is literally not in the text. There is a word for business in Greek language, several words, one of which is pragmatiomai. You ever heard the word pragmatiomai? You hear a derivative of that? Pragmatic? You hear that? Pragmatiomai? That's a word that, that Jesus used for business on other occasions. But here, there is no word here for business. This is an inference by the translators. He literally says, if I'm trying to be literal to the Greek text, and it's hard to do that sometimes, but it, it literally says, I must be about my father's. In other words, implied my father's interests, my father's agenda, my father's purpose, my father's concern. That's the sense of it. So the best that interpreters could come up with would be, say, father's business. So that's the sense of it. But they did not understand the statement. Now, this referring to Mary and Joseph didn't understand what he was really saying, which means they weren't metaphysically aware. Now, one of the jobs of you as parents, how many of you parents? Just about all of us are parents. One of our jobs as parents is to be metaphysically aware of the destiny of God on each child. That should be one of your major prayer points. What is it that God has created my daughters to do? And now that I have sons-in-law, what's he created my sons-in-laws to do? And now that I have grandchildren, what's he created my grandchildren to do? And one of the things that I'm doing now is a practice to try to help me, you know, discern this is every year on the birthday of my grandchildren, I write them a letter. Actually, my wife and I do this together. I write it and she edits it and puts her, her input into it. And the purpose of this letter, we're compiling these letters. We want to give these letters to them when they're 20, 21 years old. And it's, it's intended to give them some insight into what we're seeing of the purpose of God in their lives as they're growing up. Now, now imagine you receiving something like that when you were 20 or 21. How would you feel about that? Like, wow, somebody, somebody was praying over me and thinking about what God wanted me to do, was metaphysically aware of my life, and now wants to pass that on to me. But you know, uh, the word there for when it says, uh, uh, the word saying is a uh, uh, rhema. It is a rhema word, that's exactly. I was just going to, that was exactly my next point. Thank you. That word's, in fact, the word rhema appears a couple of times here in these verses. That's the first time it appears. Um, they did not understand the statement. That is the rhema word. See, so, which he spoke to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth, 
and was subject to them. Now that word subject to them is another word that's similar to hupomene. Remember hupomene was to abide under persecution. Well, this is hupotasso. Now, hupo, it means under. Tasso means to arrange. So it means to arrange your life under the authority that God has put over you. That's what submission means. We, we think submission means, you know, that, you know, we lose all of our rights, we just obey. No, it's now to arrange your life under the authority God has put you under. Now, we know from Romans 13.1 that all authority is ordained by God. That means even dysfunctional authority is ordained by God. God has a purpose for all authority in our lives. So what our job is, is to now arrange our lives under that authority, knowing that we've been placed there, and God will do things in terms of setting up context and training and guiding us through that authority. So Jesus had a profound sense of this. Now here's this child prodigy who's amazing the spiritual leaders of his day who willingly just submits, hupotasso, puts himself under his parents to obey them, knowing that is the way forward. Now, most of us today wouldn't probably think that way. We would think, well, gee, I'm a... I'm bright. My parents don't really understand anything. I'm metaphysically aware. They're not. They don't know what God's doing. I do. So I just can't, I can't connect with them anymore. I've just got to go out there and do my own thing. That's kind of what we would think. That's not what Jesus thought. Jesus knew the way forward was always to submit to divinely ordained authority. Now, I'll stop and think about that a second. Where is divinely ordained authority? Now, this could get uncomfortable, guys. Are you okay to be uncomfortable? Okay, number one is your parents. Whether they're functional or not, God ordained authority. God has put you as a child underneath those parents intentionally, purposely. He's going to do something there. Even if your parents were not Christians, even if your parents were Christians and clueless about metaphysical awareness, it doesn't matter. God was still doing something. Secondly, church authority. We're in a country today, a culture today, where church authority is really not regarded with much, uh, much esteem. Basically, church authority is viewed as a little more than just a, a chaplaincy service. Like, well, they're there to take care of the funerals and, and the weddings and, you know, comfort me when I'm really sick, visit me in the hospital. That's kind of what church authority does. No, that's not what church authority does. Church authority is there to guide you and direct you into the will and ways of God, which means to admonish and correct you. Well, let me just give you an example of this. Take uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, where it talks about gathering. What you do as a body of Christ is you gather, don't you? Well, notice what, um, what the writer to the Hebrews says. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting, and so much more as the day approaches. So there he's saying that when you gather, one of the things you should be doing is stir up. Now that word stir up means to provoke, means to challenge. It means when you see somebody that's living in the natural, to bring them a metaphysical challenge. What's God really doing here? What's the purpose of God here? Why has this happened? 
This is what spiritual authority should be doing. You see the same thing in Ephesians chapter 4, where it talks about the fivefold ministry and other texts. So the idea of stirring up and admonishing is very much part of Scripture. Now, there's another text that's very interesting that says a similar thing. And this, it says of music, how you gather and how you use music. Now, most of us use music as a feel-good thing. You know, I want to feel good. I want to go and experience this music so I feel better. But I want you to notice what Colossians 3.16 says. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Now, we hear that psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. We hear that. But here you're supposed to be teaching and admonishing one another in music. Wow, now that's kind of a different thought. Have you ever been admonished by a song? Have you ever felt the Holy Spirit convicting you through the words of a song of where you're out of line with God, where you're not metaphysically aware? Have you heard that? No, if you're not listening at that level, you're missing it. You're not metaphysically aware of what the Holy Spirit's trying to do. Now, I agree, sometimes the music is not profound. It's not, it's not sound. But there are some sound songs out there that we do sing, and if you listen to them and you really take them to heart, you should be challenged. You should be admonished. So this is what spiritual leadership should do. It should challenge you. It's not about making you feel good. In fact, I asked Cleburne what you guys you know, needed, and he said encouragement. So when I heard encouragement, I have a, a view of encouragement that's different from most. Most people think encouragement is making you feel good about bad circumstances. Would you agree? That's what most people think. You've got difficulty, challenges, I want to make you feel better. That is not the biblical definition of encouragement. The biblical definition of encouragement is found from, you know, rooted in the very word that's translated encouragement. The English word encouragement is the translation of the Greek word parakaleo. Now you probably can hear some English derivatives in that. Para, we get parallel from. Okay? Kaleo, we get call. The sense of it in the Greek is to call, Jack beside me, and my job is to call Jack into alignment with the will and ways of God, which may not feel good to Jack. He may not want that. He may be happy going and chasing, you know, whatever he's chasing, and he may not want that correction to get lined up with God. So biblical encouragement is not an emotion. It's an alignment tool. I'm here to align. That's what parents should be doing. That's what church leaders should be doing. It's what employers should be doing. It's what civil leaders should be doing. See, all authority is God-ordained, and it's intended to bring you into alignment with the will and ways of God. And that's always the way forward. So managers, how many of you have managed something? Your business leader, your manager, your job is alignment with God for yourself and for everyone working underneath you, including your suppliers. You ever thought about that? You know, one of the things that I've, as I've grown in metaphysical awareness, I've tried to, you know, practice this reality. How do I bring alignment with the will and ways of God in the lives of people? And sometimes it's very practical. For example, I have one service provider that works with me on some real estate that I manage for the family. 
And I, you know, over the years, he's really responded to my teaching. He's really grown and matured as a service provider. He's doing an excellent job. And so one of the things I've been working with him on in recent years is his, his pricing. I felt like his pricing was, was too low. And so I started talking to him about it, asking him, we need to evaluate this, look at your real costs. We talked about labor burden, overhead, those kinds of things, how to calculate that. So we spent some time looking at that. And finally, you know, he he continued to want to, you know, what he said, I want to give you an elder discount. I said, I don't want an elder discount. I'm declining the elder discount. I want to pay you a fair price. And we need to determine what that was. So I actually started correcting his invoices. He sent his invoices over, and, and I would go in there, I'd scratch out the, the numbers he had, and I'd put in the numbers that I thought were correct. And in some cases, that meant the, the bill was doubled. He might send me a bill for $250, and I'd send it back $500. I'm paying you $500. You know, that's, that's what I think the real value is of what you did for me. And so the, he was just stunned with this, like, what? I said, look. You need to learn how to properly price your products and services. This is the way God provides for your family, and you are, you are, you're depriving your family of God's provision on some level because you're not properly pricing your products and services. Now, see, you have to be metaphysically aware at some level as to how to really price your products and services. Now, you probably never thought about that, have you? Most people don't have any clue how to price things thinking Metaphysically. But we have to learn to think like that because God is in everything. He has a will for everything. And Jesus was very, very tuned into that and aware of that. And so one of the things he really got very clear on was submission to authority. He knew I've got to arrange my life under the authority God has placed me under because that is the way forward for me to discover the purpose and destiny that he has for me and then to fulfill that destiny. So that's what you see here is Jesus submitting to his parents, arranging his life underneath them. Now, notice that his mother is beginning to wake up. Look what it says about her. But his mother kept all these things and that's the second use of the word rhema, there, the, the word rhema, kept all these rhema words in her heart. She's observing this, watching this, and now beginning to ponder these things and say, Lord, what's, what's going on here? What are you doing? She's looking for that metaphysical side of understanding. Then we have the final phrase here in verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature, and in favor with God and men. Now this, this word increase, is a very interesting word. It's different from the word that was used in verse 40. Remember, if you go back to verse 40, it says Jesus grew. That's the word oxiano. I actually have a client. The name of the company is oxiano. Oxiano means growth. This particular company is in financial services. So it's a it's a appropriate name for the company. And so my challenge has been to my client to try to get him metaphysically aware of what that really means. What does growth really mean? It's not just money. You've got to think beyond money. Money is just a tangible tool. Oxum is able. Huh? The more correct is able. Oxiano. No, it means it means grow. 
That's what it means, literally grow. Yeah. So the second term here in verse 52 is the word increase. Now this word increase means it refers to a, a person working with metal and how they shape a piece of metal by pounding it. So it would be like a, a metalsmith working with metal to shape it. So it's a different word. It, in it, it suggests more proactive trials and tribulations. Now, it's hard for us sometimes to think about Jesus learning through trials and tribulations, but Scripture says he did. Because he learned obedience through the things he suffered, according to Hebrews chapter 5. So Jesus was learning in his humanity. He was learning just like you and I. He was experiencing hard things just like you and I do. And so that was that's the way that he was being shaped and prepared for his destiny through this suffering. And of course, you know, his ultimate destiny was to die a, a death of a suffering martyr. And so part of his preparation had to experience suffering at some level to get ready for what he was going to do on the cross. So Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature. This word stature here means age or maturity. He's growing. He's maturing physically. He's growing and maturing metaphysically. Both of these are happening. And in favor, that word favor is the word grace. It's the same word that's used in verse 40, where it talks about the grace of God was upon him in verse 40. Here now, it's the grace of God and men. He's enjoying that grace and favor with men. So you can see that this is a rich text that's describing how Jesus is preparing for the purpose of God for his life. At age 12, he's deeply into this, trying to understand the metaphysical reality of what God is doing and how he's being prepared for the destiny he has. So this should be a great model for us of following what he did, being a great student of Scripture, recognizing you need to be sent out. You don't just send yourself. I'm looking for direction from God through godly men so they can help me go out, help send me out, and I'm going to be submitted to the authority that God has put me under. I'm going to arrange my life under them knowing that God will work through them in some way to accomplish his purpose. Now let me just add one other thing, that this is not specifically in this text, but it's in other texts. If you have a dysfunctional father, which many of us do, um, you need to be clear that God is not thwarted because of dysfunctional fathers. What he does is he spends, sends you spiritual fathers. And I remember I was teaching a study about five years ago uh, at our church after our, our Friday morning marketplace prayer session. And I was teaching out of 1 Peter 5 about the role of fathers in, in helping to guide and direct you know, young men. And for some reason or another, the Holy Spirit that day chose to make me metaphysically aware of what the Father had done in my life, all throughout my life. And now he had not only given me a natural father, but he had given me four spiritual fathers. It's like all of a sudden I saw it like I had never seen it before. And you know what happened? I broke down weeping uncontrollably, teaching a Bible study about like this, you know, about, you know, seven, eight, nine guys. I couldn't talk for, for five minutes. I was weeping uncontrolled. All the guys gathered around me, they're laying hands on me, praying over me, and I can't compose myself. 
I was so overwhelmed by the revelation of the grace of God in giving me those father figures to make up for the deficiencies of my earthly father. It's like God's saying, I'm never thwarted by dysfunctional fathers. I've always got a way. And I sent you four other fathers, and they layered things into you that your earthly father couldn't do. And furthermore, you needed four because none of the four by themselves could make up the deficiencies. You know, this one did this over here, and this one did this over here, and this one did this over here. So each one of them did something different in helping me come to a fuller understanding of the purpose of God for my life. You see, God is very creative. He has no end of resources. We need to get submitted and get content. We get to thinking God doesn't know what he's doing, that he doesn't really understand, you know, my situation, you know, the difficulties, the trials I'm having. He doesn't really get it. He doesn't really understand my destiny. You see how the the faulty thinking we get into? We become very physically oriented instead of metaphysically oriented. When if I'm metaphysically oriented, I'm really tuned in to the reality that God is in control and he is intentional and purposeful and everything happens for a reason. Now I'm always looking for him to clarify, him to direct, and my job is to do what Jesus did. Hupo tasso. Arrange my life under the authority God's put me under. My parents, my spiritual authority, my workplace authority, my civil authority. Those are all God-ordained vehicles to guide me and direct me into the will and ways of God so that I can do what God put me here to do, so that you can do what God put you here to do. So may you have grace to learn to walk underneath, submitted to the authority God's put you under, and think and see metaphysically what He is doing and not just see in the natural. May that be your portion in Jesus' name. Amen.